Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Wouldn't it be cool if there was a Netflix for finance? Well, there is. It's called Real Vision, and it gives you unprecedented access to some of the most respected names in finance. Watch interviews with legends like Kyle Bass, Jeff Gunlock, Stanley Drunkenmiller, and many, many more. If you want to be part of the Real Vision revolution, visit realvision.com slash WSO. Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Grodnick, and this is Moving Up, a podcast about secrets to success, struggles along the way, and life in general. Today on the pod, Adam Dell. Adam's company, Clarity Money, was acquired by Goldman Sachs 18 months after he started it, and for a really big number. It's a great story, but one that doesn't just happen by chance. Adam was so deliberate and careful in creating his startup, and the results speak for themselves. A really great interview ahead. First, I didn't mention this last week, but this episode is our 101st of Moving Up. It's pretty awesome that this little podcast, which I had no clue what I was doing when I started, has now done 101 episodes. It's been downloaded close to a million times, and it's growing fast. To celebrate the 100th episode, we're giving away a Wall Street Oasis course. The investment banking one or a private equity one, whatever, you choose. The way you get it is just leave us a review on iTunes and we'll pick someone at the end of the week. It's a big milestone, and I just really want to thank everyone for sticking with me throughout the journey. I've certainly learned quite a bit about creating good podcasts, and I know it's been helpful to at least a few of the listeners who have reached out and told me about jobs and internships they've gotten from podcast guests, or a new sense of motivation or perspective. So here's to doing 100 more and continuing to learn and improve and grow on the journey. I can't thank you enough for listening. And go leave us a review on iTunes and get that free course from Wall Street Oasis. Okay, let's get into the interview. Adam, so welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, excited, excited to be uh, to be speaking with you. You're, you've been a, uh, a venture investor. You've founded a pretty incredible fintech company that had you know some some amazing results. We'll uh, we'll get into those things that happened later in your career, but like we always do, let's let's start earlier. When uh, when Adam started to become who Adam is today, when did when did that start to start to take form? Yeah, when I was in law school, I started to really. Uh, think for the first time seriously about what I wanted to do uh, with my career. Um, that may seem like an illogical time to start thinking about that, but uh, when I graduated from college, I didn't want to go to business school. I didn't want to go to medical school. I wanted to continue my education, and law school seemed like a logical extension of what I had studied in college, which is political economy. Um, I really liked the idea of policy and philosophy uh, as it relates to economics, and law school seemed to be uh, a logical next step. And as I, as I started to think more seriously about my long-term career, I sort of discovered venture capital. Uh, and as I dug into it, it struck me as something that uh, uh, I might I might enjoy doing. Sure. So then, like 
you know, most people go to law school, they go to law school to go work for some like big law firm and they do that for a little while and they say this, this is terrible. And then they go, you know, be like in house counsel or something for some startup. And then they like see a startup and like, you're like, I'm going to skip all those terrible steps and just like get right into, right into startup investing. Well, no, I, I worked for a law firm in, in Texas for about two years. And during the second year of my time uh, working as an attorney, I started to put my resume together and I started to spend time with the Austin Software Council and other startups that sort of made up the ecosystem of, of venture and, and uh, activity in, in that market. And, you know, basically started uh, interviewing with different venture firms. I uh, was lucky enough to get a job as an associate with a venture firm in Southern California uh, called Enterprise Partners, which at the time was the largest venture firm in that market. And uh, that, that sort of launched me into the venture business. It's funny, I remember speaking with Jimmy Tribeck, who's uh, one of the early founders of Tandem and kind of a legendary uh, tech guy in the uh, Austin community. And he basically said, you know, get into the venture business any way you can, even if you have to crawl in through the back window. And I really took that advice to heart and basically took uh, whatever job I could get. Yeah. So can you, can you, Adam, can you elaborate on just like, because, you know, a lot of people listening to this podcast, you know, people going to business school, people pre-business school, like a lot of people want to work in venture. And, you know, one of the things that I always talk about is like, you can't just like send in a resume. You have to find ways to provide value, you know, do free work, show deals, provide like whatever it is. Like, can you talk about some of that like scrappiness of, of get breaking in? Yeah. So I, um, I got every issue of uh, the red herring uh, in the industry standard that I could um, and started to uh, actually as red herring and upside magazine uh, industry standard came later. Uh, and I literally made a list of every name uh, mentioned in, in the articles in those magazines and, you know, cold called a number of them sent, uh, you know, uh, emails and cover letters to every single one of them. And, you know, basically, uh, over time, uh, you know, got got a little bit of a lay uh, of the land uh, in understanding who the venture players were in different markets, and kind of weaseled my way into enterprise partners. From there, That's... I was able to get an interview, and they didn't offer me a job, but I pretty much kind of hung around the hoop long enough for them to recognize that. I was serious about this and I wasn't going to go away. And you, you talk about scrappiness. I, I basically did offer to work for free. Um, and, you know, they ultimately, ultimately gave me a job. Yeah, that's, that's a great story. I mean, that's where it takes to make it in competitive fields and venture. You know, when you were doing this, I'm sure it was maybe a little less competitive than, than it is today, but, but always a super enviable position. So great. You say, I'll work for free. I'll be here. I'll provide value. I'll help you find companies or vet companies or really whatever it is, just like, you know, give me my, give me my first look. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, this, this cold calling thing is a, is a bizarre and, and funny exercise, you know, 90 plus percent of the uh, calls or emails you'll send will go unanswered. But, you know, I, um, I, I very quickly figured out that the only way to really get into the main flow of the opportunity set in startups was to, you know, basically put yourself in the middle of it. And so, um, you know, after working in Southern California for about two years, uh, I got an interview with a venture firm in Northern California called, Inter 
called Crosspoint Venture Partners and was lucky enough to meet a guy named John Mumford, who became my mentor, was also from Texas like me, um, sort of recognized the, the scrappy business nature of my, of my thinking um, and, and kind of took me under his wing. Uh, and that really, you know, really broadened my horizons uh, around what was possible uh, with venture capital. John uh, was the founder of four public companies um, and really taught me about incubation, uh, really taught me about the, 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 the real mechanics of venture finance, um, you know, capital structure, intellectual property, uh, you know, all the things that go into to the basics of, of venture investing. Uh, and he's really, you know, the person who, who, you know, most formed my understanding of how this, this, this business works. Yeah, I mean, that's an incredible position to be in and, and create a mentor like that for yourself. I mean, it's, that's fantastic. But I'm looking back that it all started with, uh, with a cold email. You know, people have their issues with cold emailing and it can work, it can not work. You said it's kind of a, a numbers game, but if you do enough of them and they're focused and targeted enough, it can, it can work and it can be the beginnings of a, a career. I mean, I, I cold emailed you and, and now we're, uh, we're doing this. Yeah, well, you know, there's there's something very interesting that exists today that didn't exist when I was younger, which is, you know, the internet is incredibly a deep, rich well of resources and information. You know, when I walked into John Mumford's office at Crosspoint, I got up and took a uh, a pen and got on the whiteboard and sort of mapped out what I thought was the business to business. Uh, e-commerce opportunity uh, of the time. And I had decided that that was going to be the area that I was going to focus on from an investment standpoint. And so I walked in the door with a very specific perspective about what opportunities uh, might exist in that in that segment of the market. And that's exactly what Crosspoint was looking for in an associate. They liked the fact that I had done a lot of work and research, fundamental research, uh, before I got there. Uh, and so I had a point of view. And, you know, often when students in the past have asked me, um, you know, how do I break into the venture business? You know, what should I focus on? I often tell them they should pick a very specific area and become a subject matter expert in that area. And, you know, it's amazing what three or four weeks of research uh, uh, can yield, uh, you know, just by utilizing this incredible resource uh, available to all of us called the internet. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, becoming a, a specialist and, and yeah, then when you, when you get in front of someone, you can go up on that whiteboard and have confidence. I mean, whether you've built businesses in that, in the e-commerce space or not, like you can uh, have a point of view. And I think, I think people really appreciate that uh, as you're going through an interview process or just, you know, general, like a lunch or, or whatever. Um, People, it's great when you can say, "Yeah, I'll be the first one in and the, and the and the last one to leave," and I'm super eager. But it's it's you know magnitudes better if you can have a point of view on something and come in and hit the ground running and say, "This is what I would do in my first couple of weeks," and these are the people we should go after, and these are the interesting companies. And it's like, wow, this there's like uh, we just need to fund like turn this on and and uh, and uh, it, it could really go. Yeah, there's definitely um, um, no shortage of enthusiasm, but there is. A shortage of really talented people who uh, are willing to do hard fundamental work. Yep. Okay. So you know, starting to de-risk yourself and show that you're willing to put in put in the work, and uh, and then so 
How does uh, how do you, how do your early days in venture go from there? Well, um, you know, I would say that you know in ninety seven ninety eight it was quite a heady time uh, in venture uh, right before kind of the bubble burst. Uh, um, you know, there was an incredible velocity to deal activity in the valley. Valuations were uh, pretty intense, although they're not like they are now. Um, and, you know, so I had a, a really fun time, uh, at Crosspoint. Um, uh, those guys were incredible investors. As I said, they taught me a ton. Um, and I just absolutely loved, uh, that environment, you know, being in the Valley, it's kind of like, um, being in a, a, uh, uh, almost like a, um, a thunderstorm of activity where there's just constant energy uh, flying around in every direction. And if you're fortunate enough to, to, you know, uh, you know, find the right teams and the right ideas, you can, you can really, uh, um, you know, do, do some profound things in, in a short amount of time. Uh, I, I remember one of the early investments we made at Crosspoint uh, was a company called Connectify, which is a, early uh, email company that did something called predictive collaborative filtering, which is basically r- recommended things to you based on your preferences. And, you know, very quickly that company, after we funded it, uh, nine, 10 months later was acquired by Kana, which was a, a larger email company. And then shortly after that, Kana went public. It was a very quick turnaround, very quick return uh, for, the, for the fund. And I remember thinking, well, geez, this is pretty easy. Um, but then of course, you know, the bubble burst and, uh, things got, got a lot harder. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. That's the, uh, function of being in a cyclical business exposed to the markets there. You're, there's going to be, there's going to be ups and downs. The ups and downs were probably the best thing that happened to, to me in my career. After, um, cross point, I moved to New York city, uh, in 2000, I raised my own fund, um, and invested that fund uh, right into the the basically the bubble bursting, and um, you know I was staring at a pile of investments that I had made in companies that were, were not worth as much on paper as they were when I had invested, and it really was an incredible um, um, exercise in focus and in discipline, uh, and making sure that we you know nurtured those companies along and saw them um, uh, to their fullest potential. Um, among those companies was Open Table, um, uh, a company called um, Hot Jobs, which was acquired by Yahoo, a company called Ingenio that was acquired by AT&T. Um, and while the ultimate outcome of those businesses uh, was pretty good for our investors and our LPs. It was a pretty pretty hairy time, and it really was just sheer hard work and commitment that resulted in the outcomes that we were able to achieve. Yeah, I mean that's a that's a, a good testament to any, anything in life, right? Like stuff starts starts to go bad, you have to hunker down, focus, figure out what's good, what's bad. I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of, uh, of lessons. I mean, like, you know, the Warren Buffett line of like, everything's good, but when the, the tide goes out, that's when you see who, uh, who doesn't have a bathing suit on. So like, do you have, do you have like key takeaways of, you know, things you did 
you know, during the, the, the lean times that kind of set you up for the, the next wave? Yeah. Um, so, you know, uh, it was, it was very obvious, uh, in hindsight, but, um, you know, what, what we did was we looked at our portfolio companies, we sort of triaged our resources against those that we thought had the highest potential return, um, and sort of cut bait on the ones that we didn't think would move the needle. And so we really picked out of about 20 investments, we had made four companies to focus on and really just put a bunch of, of, of weight and, and energy behind those. Um, and that really made all the difference. Um, you know, the, the dynamics, as you well know, of venture investing is, you know, you invest in 20 companies, you, you hope that one or two are big home runs, three or four of them are kind of moderate successes and everything else is kind of uh, irrelevant in terms of returns. Um, not in, not irrelevant in terms of people and lives and commitments to, to opportunities, but 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 certainly in terms of uh, economic uh, return for our investors. And so we focused on those companies that we thought could move the needle. And you know, Message One, which is a company that I had founded, uh, was one of those. Open Table was one of those. Um, Ingenio was one of those. Uh, and you know, just focusing on those opportunities and and caring and nurturing for them in a way that. Um, you know, helped to ensure their success was was really uh, what what caused the outcome uh, that we achieved. Yeah, that makes great sense. So then, okay, so now post crisis, um, do you raise a new fund? Are you continuing to to invest? Like, what happens next? Yeah, so you know, after uh, after uh, raising my own fund, I was given the opportunity to join Austin Ventures, which uh, at the time was the largest venture firm and private equity firm in Texas. Uh, and I had always uh, thought it would be uh, a great thing to work at Austin Ventures. At the time, the firm was a, an iconic firm in that market, um, and so that was a, a, a happy kind of homecoming for me. Um, you know, one of the dynamics about the venture industry that very few people talk about is that the vast majority of the funds that are raised don't make any money. Um, all the money is concentrated in just a few firms who are the top performers. So, you know, the Sequoias, the benchmarks, the Kleiners, uh, the Excels of the world, they gobble up the vast majority of the returns. Most of the other firms out there are sort of, you know, um, uh, just, just, just at the edges. Um, and so given those return dynamics, I, I really started to believe that, focusing on individual sectors and really going deep in, an, in a specific sector was the way to improve the odds there. And so I started to uh, focus very specifically on, on individual sectors. Um, you know, uh, Clarity Money um, was the result of um, going really deep in consumer finance, you know, using every product out there, uh, studying every trend in behavioral economics, spending lots of time really thinking about how consumers actually think about their money, how they actually behave with respect to their money, uh, how they actually save, how they actually invest. And a lot of fundamental research led me to conclude that there was an opportunity uh, in the personal financial space, uh, which is how Clarity Money came to be. Awesome. So this is the piece that you know I want to talk about because this is, this is how you you got on on on, uh, on my radar. I'm interested in the story of Clarity Money. I mean, if anyone's seen it in the 
news. I mean, it's uh, I'd love to hear you describe the product and then the life cycle of it and raising money for it. And then, you know, obviously, and then, you know, selling it to Goldman Sachs for, for a big number. So, uh, yeah, I'm just really interested in the, the evolution of it. Yeah. So, you know, I, I did what I always do, which is I, I, you know, had a view that consumer finance was, was gonna, um, you know, go through some revolution uh, you, I saw Rocket Mortgage, uh, which was really exploding. People were making fundamental decisions on their phone about something as profound as a mortgage. Uh, I saw that uh, big data was out there as a resource that you could mine to try to uncover insights for consumers. And I had really um, gone very deep in behavioral economics, uh, studying the work of Thaler and Kahneman. Uh, and you know, concluding that consumers make decisions about their money in a very irrational way. Could you use behavioral economics and the, the notions of nudging and anchoring and framing um, as ways to help consumers make steps toward a better financial life? Those three things all led me to conclude that there was a big opportunity uh, in the personal financial management space, a, a market that had been dominated by Mint for years. Most people who I talked to said, you know, you shouldn't invest in a PFM, that that market's saturated by Mint and the other players in it. People don't like to budget. You know, this is not a good use of your time. There's There are bigger opportunities out there. And I, I felt differently about it. I, I felt like uh, Mint was a great uh, dashboard about your past, but wasn't a step you could take to improve something about your future. I also felt like Mint was emotionally tone deaf. It didn't take into account the um, the psychological uh, barriers that consumers face when thinking about their money. It's overwhelming. It's scary. It's complicated. Uh, most of the news is bad for you know the vast majority of people in the middle of the bell curve of the you know socioeconomic distribution. Uh, and so there's just a lot of inertia and, and negative feelings uh, around money uh, for the average consumer. Uh, and so I, I, I felt that that was a, a very rich and interesting problem set. And, um, you know, Clarity uh, was built with the idea that uh, it's inevitable that in, in the future, there will be a digital assistant that will help you navigate financial choice. That digital assistant will be your advocate. That digital assistant will know about your particular situation, and it will help you navigate those uh, choices uh, in a way that that really gives, uh, for lack of a better term, clarity to the decisions and choices consumers uh, need to make. You know, one of the things that 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 Clarity did, uh, I think, pretty well was we were obsessed with design designed not just for the aesthetics of making the experience feel comfortable and warm and welcoming, but design in the sense that we broke finance up into digestible bits, um, individual tiles that you could look at. And even if you had a relatively uh, minimal financial education, you could look at and say, okay, I understand what this tile is telling me about my financial life. It's telling me that I made $5,000 this month. I've spent $4,200 this month, and this is how much I have left. Um, and that that was one of the core uh, ideas behind the product. Yeah, that's cool. And so, Adam, you're looking at 
the consumer finance space from an investor perspective? Like, where does the switch happen here from where you go from investor to operator? Yeah, well, I, I looked around for something to back, um, and I really couldn't find uh, the product that I had in my mind, which was basically a remote control for your financial life, a digital assistant for your financial life. You know, there were aggregators out there like Credit Karma and Nerd Wallet. Um, there were loan providers out there like SoFi and Prosper. Um, and there was Mint. Um, and again, as I said, Mint was uh, really a dashboard about your past. And what I wanted was a, uh, a, a tool to help you plan your future uh, and to be able to press a button and have something change about your future. And so, you know, while it may seem simple, um, we focused on very small tactical steps like what subscriptions are you paying for every month? Uh, we uncover all of those. We show you them to you in one simple place. We show you how much money you would spend each year on Hulu or Audible or Netflix. Uh, and we give you a simple way to cancel those, those services if you deem them uh, to be things you no longer need. And if you think about the process of presenting a consumer with a view into all of their subscriptions and a button to cancel them, there's a lot that happens there from a product and relationship with the consumer standpoint. You know, when you talk to consumers about their money, particularly as a commercial enterprise, there are two things that happen. One is the consumer is convinced that it's going to get complicated really quickly. And the second thing is they're convinced you're going to try to sell them something. And so by leading with subscriptions, uh, what we showed to the consumer was that this tool called Clarity Money could help them figure out something about their financial life, would help them take tactical steps that would improve that life, i.e. canceling a bill that would result in you having more money in a given month, and we would do it for free. And, and that completely shifted the relationship we had with the consumer from one of skepticism and doubt to, hey, this thing is actually really here to help me and is really useful. And that was a key um, lesson that I pulled out of the behavioral economics work that I had read about with, um, you know, Kahneman, Thaler, um, Dan Ariely. Um, th those individuals really helped form my thinking around uh, what the product should do for a consumer around money. Uh, and I, and I really have to uh, be very thankful and grateful for the work they did and, and how it informed my thinking about the product. Yeah, that's, that's so interesting. And in the very, very beginning, as you're looking for, you know, the, the investment here, did you, did you find the company and say, oh, this is it, I want to invest and I want to become an operator? Or did you, did you start this company from, from scratch? No, I started it uh, from scratch with a blank sheet of paper. I put together a PowerPoint presentation. I shared it with, you know, my cohort of uh, investors and friends that I've worked with over the years. Um, raised a Series A from from basically friends and family, and got to work. So you raised the Series A on basically a PowerPoint presentation. So that's the benefit of your the connections and experience that you carved out in your uh, earlier life. Yeah, I, I mean, I, this you know, Clarity is the fourth company that I've started, and and um, you know, they've all, all worked out pretty well. Um, you know, Clarity was certainly the fastest return. Uh, you know, the whole journey was kind of 18 months from beginning to, to exit. 
Uh, so it was definitely faster than anything I've experienced before. Um, but yeah, it was a, it was it was a, um, a a fortunate fortunate outcome for all the investors. Yeah. So you raise this Series A based on a PowerPoint, and then you go to work, and then you build the product, which you described as being pretty complex and, and, and intricate. And then what were the initial signs of traction success? Like how was it going in the early days? Yeah, well, there's, <laughs> I, I remember one late night, it was about 1030. There were about eight of us in a room that was way too small for the number of people in it. And we were, you know, banging away on building the thing. And I remember thinking, what if no one uses this thing? <laughs> um, and that was a, a very, uh, uh, scary thought, uh, but you know you push through that fear and you you focus on really building something that you know you think consumers will like. And um, you know we launched the product um, in January of 2017, and really uh, on the first day um, when we launched it, we had over 25,000 customers. That was in part due to the fact that Apple um, really fell in love with our product and promoted us on the App Store. So that was a very lucky, um, you know, uh, windfall for us uh, right out of the gate. Um, it wasn't entirely luck because um, Apple is obviously obsessive about design. Uh, at the time, I think we had the most and, and I think we probably still do have the most beautiful view into your money, um, the, the most clear and simple view into your money. Apple really, uh, that really resonated with Apple. And so they wanted to promote us because it was an example of how, you know, the iPhone could be a, uh, a device to, to help people do things that are important about their financial life. Uh, and so, you know, from there it, it, it kind of went, you know, uh, you know, kind of continued to go up. Uh, we continue to attract uh, users uh, every month, uh, and we grew, you know, quite profoundly. You know, over over a million customers in less than a year. Okay, so uh, yeah, so we we just heard about the uh, using basically Apple as the as the distribution point. I mean, this is like the key of of all fintech is like how to get customers and not have to pay a lot for them. I mean, the bank you work at now, Goldman Sachs. I mean, I assume that their customer acquisition cost doesn't all rely on, on Apple and they're probably spending money to, to get customers. But like, that's the, the key tenant in, uh, in finance. The Apple promotions that we received on the App Store were part of it, but it was only one part of it. So, um, you know, Apple definitely helped us um, get launched and kind of get some attention. We then, you know, executed on a multi-pronged acquisition strategy heavy reliance on PR, heavy reliance on word of mouth and referrals, um, and a heavy um, campaign around acquisition through channels like Facebook and Instagram. You know, the, the value proposition of, um, you know, here are all your subscriptions. You can cancel them for free in one place was a pretty interesting hook. And, you know, no matter how much or little money you have, Everybody has in their brain uh, a cluster of uh, synapses that are frustrated around the notion of leaking money on things you don't need. And so, again, going back to the behavioral economics uh, work, the 
idea of exploiting that and presenting it to a consumer um, as a solution to that problem uh, really was compelling. And so we drove into that messaging and into that piece of the product suite uh, quite heavily, and uh, it really resonated with consumers. And so while, again, Apple helped launch us, it was really the core value proposition of the product um, and presenting that through multiple channels of acquisition that led us to acquire so many customers so quickly. Sure. And then I guess this lastly here on the, on the clarity story of, you know, getting acquired by, by GS, how did that come about? Yeah. So we were in the process of um, launching a loan offer uh, to our customers and reached out to Goldman Sachs uh, and the Marcus business around uh, having loans uh, be one of the providers on our platform, uh, the, the Marcus loan business be one of the providers on our platform. And through that discussion, uh, the topic of you know, an acquisition uh, emerged. Uh, interestingly, we, we were in discussions with a few strategics, uh, all almost within a 90-day period um, around uh, an acquisition. Um, and it was a pretty um, wild and fast-moving uh, set of discussions with, again, a number of large strategics. The reason we settled on, on, on Goldman ultimately was really their commitment to and their alignment with our ethos around advocacy. Marcus by Goldman Sachs, even though Goldman Sachs is a very large financial institution, um, you know, it really has no legacy in consumer. Um, Marcus by Goldman Sachs is a new entrant into the uh, personal finance market. Uh, we offer savings accounts, we offer loans, uh, personal loans. Um, both of those are offered with no fees. Um, if you open a deposit account, we'll pay you 2.25% interest with no fees. If you need to borrow, we'll lend to you at a very reasonable rate compared to, say, your credit card company. And the ethos of giving consumers lots of free tools and resources a la the Clarity Money Suite, as a way to help consumers genuinely understand their financial life and understand their options, is at the core of the Marcus value prop. So you'll see us offer loans, not just from Marcus by Goldman Sachs, but from other loan providers in the marketplace. And we'll present those offers in an open marketplace, uh, rationalized view for you as the customer. Uh, to allow you to make the best choice for yourself. And the idea behind that is, again, advocacy, transparency on behalf of the consumer uh, is, in our estimation, inevitable. And in the same way that retail and transportation have been transformed by virtue of technology, and that has, as a result, been better for the consumer in terms of options and prices that they pay, we think the same thing is going to happen in banking. And it is our aspiration to be at the forefront of that evolution and to uh, present again to the consumer uh, a set of options that are, um, uh, you know, the, 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 the full spectrum of, 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 of their choices in the marketplace. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree with you, Adam. I've got, I've got a Clarity account and a Marcus account. They're both so well designed and delightful to use that like, you're right. It's, it's so interesting when an incumbent bank who doesn't have a presence 
in consumer or doesn't have a, a market there and they can come out and build something like that. I mean, I, I don't think many other banks could, could do something like that. So pretty cool. Well, we have a long way to go, but we're, uh, um, you know, thoughtful and, and hopefully uh, uh, humble in our aspiration, but, uh, but um, you know, we're working hard to try to deliver value to consumers. Yeah, well, that's, that's great to hear. So um, last question here on, uh, on advice, you know, for someone early in their career, kind of trying to carve out their, their place in the world. I mean, we've heard about how you identified venture capital as being an interesting place for you, and then basically did whatever it took to, to get in and became a subject expert. Uh, what do you tell someone, you know, maybe they've, maybe they've identified a specific industry, and they know that that's what they want to do, but, but maybe they haven't. Uh, what kind of guidance could you, uh, could you, Give someone based on, uh, on on your journey. Yeah, well, one is is to figure out genuinely, um, and and this requires you know some degree of of, of reflection and, and introspection. But figure out what you're genuinely good at. You know, if you're a technical analytical person, um, you know, engineering might be the right path for you. If you're more social. Uh, and more outgoing, uh, maybe marketing or business development is right for you. Um, but figuring that out early and running as fast and as furiously toward the thing that you are good at is is a good first step. The, the, the second is that you need to take action, get feedback, iterate, and repeat. Um, you know, so often uh, I run into individuals who ask for advice and they say, I'm really interested in, you know, becoming a venture capitalist or starting a company or, you know, whatever it is that their aspiration is. And then I'll say, okay, well, what are you doing uh, to, to make, you know, progress toward that goal? And they say things like, well, right now I'm working, at, you know, this company or I'm doing this and I'm not really able to work on that. And, you know, I understand the constraints of having a job and a boss and bills and, and, and you know, the reality of, of, of life. But even with those constraints, if you're not proactively taking steps and getting feedback and iterating on those steps, you're, you're never going to make any progress. And so that feedback loop uh, is critical. And um, the third thing I would say is don't be afraid to map out a trajectory of your career. You know, I want to do this for five years, then I'm going to do this for three years, then I'm going to do this for six years, and, 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 and I'm going to end up in this spot. And it's okay if that path changes over time. Inevitably, it will because the best laid plans. But, but having a goal and working toward that goal in a very mindful and specific way is much more rare than you would think. Um, and so, you know, when I am trying to identify talent and I'm always trying to identify talent, um, I look for people who are, you know, marching up that hill and their march up that hill is purposeful and it is clear. And while they may take detours, where they're going in their mind is very, very specific. Um, those are the folks that I think tend to do best uh, in their pursuit of a of a goal, and so those are the things I would encourage uh, uh, f- folks to to think about. Oh, Adam, I love yeah 
thinking strategically and, and laying out what a what a career path can look like for you. And yeah, it's going to go up and down and left and right, but but having some type of guiding force and goal through it all is is super helpful. Well, this was this was awesome speaking with you, and uh, I just really want to thank you again for uh, for coming on. Sure, thank you. Thanks for listening today. If you like moving up, the best way you can support us is by telling your friends, helping us grow. Thank you.